It is uh, so great to be with you guys. And I, I have to say, um, I feel about you like the Apostle Paul felt about the Philippian church. I thank God on every remembrance of you. Uh, you know, from the first day when we started in China, Calvary Chapel has supported us. You guys have been so faithful. Uh, Rob actually personally supports us. And I, I got to tell you, that kind of love and generosity just blows me away. And uh, you have to know that we are so grateful to God for you guys. Just by way of report, uh, two years ago in 2013, we started uh, a ministry uh, in China where we were training young adults, kids in their 20, maybe 21 to 29 years old. And if you met these kids, you'd like them, but you would look at them and you'd go, well, they're really nothing special. They're uh, rural kids. They're poor most of them have had a junior high education, and that's it. So they're not coming from the universities and from the wealthy and from the ultra-talented. They're, they're just ordinary young adults who have committed themselves to the Great Commission. And now two years later, we've graduated two groups of these. One group is in the Sudan. Uh, they live in a place that has no electricity, no running water, none of the things that we have come to view as basic living essentials. Uh, they live in an area that has been torn apart by war. Uh, people are starving. And, and as you know, I don't know if you know the model, but uh, when the Chinese church sends them out, they send them out doing business as mission. So they go out to uh, start a business, and so these guys have gone out and they have started an organic farming uh, business where they are raising vegetables organically, healthy, and in a, in a way that's going to bless the health of the people who are there. And so God is using them to meet the physical needs of the people there because the whole country, the whole infrastructure has just been torn apart. And they are walking around and people speak English there. And so in English, they are preaching the gospel. So they will go into a community center, and one of these guys that we trained will hold up a megaphone, and he will start preaching the gospel in English. And people are getting saved like crazy. And so they're forming churches, and they're building up believers already and getting ready to expand into other communities. The second group we trained is in Iraq. They are 25 miles from ISIS headquarters. So they are right in the middle of a danger zone. And again, they've gone in as a business. But what's happened is the people have been so brutalized by ISIS that they've actually formed a refugee camp. And so they've been ministering to the refugees who have fled ISIS control in their villages and towns and things like that. And they were doing this and everything was going along at one level and they're looking up at the hills and 400 young women are running down the hill for their lives. All of these women had been uh, kidnapped by ISIS and you know what they do. They pass them around from soldier to soldier. So the highest ranking soldier gets the fresh ones, so to speak. It's terrible to talk about that. And then when he's used them up, they get passed down the line. And so these women have been beaten, they've been raped, they've been uh, brutalized in every imaginable way. And a lot of these women are nine and ten years old. And so the evil that they have suffered and the trauma that they have suffered... Our team is now sharing the love of Christ with them. So they're feeding them and strengthening them because they've also been starved while all of this was going on. And so they're feeding them. They're teaching them how to raise their own food. Uh, they're teaching them how to make their own way in life because in the Muslim world, it doesn't matter if you were raped. You're still damaged goods. You're no good to anybody. So these women are viewed essentially as worthless, even by their own families. And so 
the Chinese that we've trained are having this amazing ministry. So what's exciting to me is we're training them and then they're being sent out and they're doing extraordinary things for God. Ordinary people with ordinary faith. You think I, you'd, you'd think I would say extraordinary faith, but their faith is ordinary in China. Everybody believes that Jesus is alive. What a crazy idea. Everybody believes that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is in them. And so they just live that way. They live as if Jesus is alive, the gospel is true, and the gospel is for everyone. And so for them to meet somebody and not share the gospel, they go, why would I do that? Even if it puts me in prison, why would I not share the gospel? So we're having a good time. Uh, things are very fluid. We, we think we get a, a, a nice routine going and something changes. You know, the government showed up at where we teach and we had to stay away for a week. Um, they have, uh, we, I think if you remember last time, we were talking about where we were teaching at the library well, the government came to the librarian and said, you can't have him anymore. So we're, that's been closed off to us. So a number of things that we loved have been closed off to us, but God has opened up other opportunities. So we're learning how to walk by faith. So I'm going back in, in uh, the 8th of February, uh, and Connie will be going back in March because I'll be preaching in Hong Kong for a month, and then she'll come when our classes are ready to begin. But we don't even know where we'll be meeting. All we know is that we have to leave our apartment and the whole factory actually has to move uh, to a new location. And so we're kind of like the children of Israel following the cloud. We'll go where God leads us and we're not sure until we get there what we're going to be doing and where we're going to be doing it. So that's just a little bit of a report. Uh, Rob asked me to speak and he said, you can have your choice. You can either uh, teach from Acts 17 or you can teach whatever you want. And once I heard we were in Acts I had to settle into the book of Acts because it's one of my favorite books. Because in the book of Acts, we learn something that the gospel is not meant to be possessed. It's meant to be spread. Do you understand that? We were never designed to hold on to the gospel. We were designed as Christians to share the gospel. And when you do that, that's when you learn of the power of the gospel. That's when your faith grows. And, and the church had all sorts of problems. You've been through 16 chapters. They've had divisions. They've had people who were struck dead because of their sin. They've had liars. They've had deceivers. They've had all sorts of problems. They've had cultural problems. But the church didn't decide... Well, we need to solve our problems first, and then we'll talk about spreading the gospel. See, the gospel transcends that. And so now we come to chapter 17. And I want to take you to, oops, jumped ahead. I want to take you and just give you a little background on, on Paul's missionary journey. Because to me, this is interesting, and it's, that's a little small. But if you've got one of those maps in the back of your Bible... It'll show you about how much traveling Paul did. And I just want to share with you. Paul's second missionary journey was three years long. So for three years, Paul was away from his home. A hundred of those days were spent pure, purely in travel. So just to do the traveling that Paul had to go from place to place, he was on the road a hundred days out of those three years. He covered over 3,000 miles. Now I want you to know, as a missionary, I do a lot of travel, and I get exhausted just flying to Hong Kong. Even though I'm sitting on my fanny the whole time, I'm still tired. Everything that Paul did, he either walked or rode in a ship. So walking... Uh, you can cover typically 20 to 25 miles a day. And that's what Paul did during his time. And so um, 
what you see is that for most of the time, Paul was on the road. He was between towns. He would have to just pull off at the side, and they usually had a a pack or a little tent that they would set up. Life was not comfortable for Paul. And now, after all of this stuff, he comes to Thessalonica. So let's start reading. We're in Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn to Acts 17. We'll do a lot of reading tonight because I think the story is really exciting to me. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so it might be a little different than your version. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went with them, went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, by the way, just so you know, what, what 17.1 covers so simply, Paul's travels in 17.1 were um, about 330 miles. So again, think about 20 miles a day, 25 miles a day. So every four days you can cover 100 miles. So about 12 days walking and Paul finally gets into Thessalonica. So for three weeks he starts reasoning uh, with the Jews there as he always did. We'll keep on giving reading in verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So Paul would go from the Old Testament because still the New Testament hasn't been written. And he is helping the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, the people who had kind of converted to the Jewish faith, helping them to understand that it was necessary for Messiah to suffer and rise again and that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a large number of, of leading women. This ministry is characterized by amazing response. And a little bit of me wishes, wow, I wish I had been Paul. I wish I, wish I had been the guy in Thessalonica preaching and, and, and living Paul's life. But there's something we need to understand. That when God is doing something great, you always pay a price. When God is doing something great, you always pay a price. I mean, it's interesting, and we kind of gloss over stories, but do you realize that the disciples would never have seen the lake calmed If they hadn't been in the storm. They never would have seen the glory of God shine in his power over nature if they hadn't been fearing for their lives. And what I want you to understand, and and let's, if you've got your Bibles, keep your finger in Acts 17. And let's go over to 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Because this really, when you put these two scriptures together, you begin to see Uh, Paul's, what Paul is going through. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, that was the story that Rob shared last week, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So even while God was blessing, there were people pushing back against Paul. There always is. We should expect that when we're doing the word of God, when we're doing the work of God. Paul says, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been improved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our life. So Paul is sharing with the Thessalonians, hey, you guys remember when we came, these were hard times. So was it worth it? Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 1, one chapter over, starting with verse 5. 
Paul says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about you what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You guys, this is an amazing church. And I think for the rest of his life, there there are two churches that Paul looked back on with amazing memories. One was the church at Philippi and one was the church at Thessalonica. And both churches were birthed in great difficulty. Now let's carry the story. Go back to Acts chapter 17. We're going to look at verse 5 now. As God blesses, what does Satan do? He counterattacks. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out of the people. When they did not find them, Paul and Silas, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the world, have come here also. And Jason welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they received a pledge from Jason, obviously there's kind of a, almost like Baal, uh, they, they released them. So what's happening? God works. Satan attacks. Paul, to avoid uh, more pressure coming on Jason, leaves the city, and now he comes to Berea. So we pick it up in verse 10. The brethren immediately sent... Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, what did they do? They went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these these Jewish people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Therefore many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they come there as well, agitating and stirring the crowds. Now, Thessalonica and Berea are 50 miles apart. The Jews in Thessalonica, they start hearing word, oh my gosh, those crazy guys are bringing more Jews to Christ. So they walk 50 miles, two days journey, so they can continue their work of opposing the word of God. You guys, you need to understand this. Sometimes there are people who seem crazed in their opposition to Jesus Christ. Have you, have you seen them? And rather than being surprised when they show up, you ought to be surprised when they don't show up. Because Satan hates the gospel taking root in people's lives. Paul goes to Berea 50 miles away, starts having a great ministry. The Jews hear about this. They send people down to stir up trouble and to try to get Paul kicked out of Berea. Verse 13, or let's go down to verse 14. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. Now, this time, Paul goes out alone because he is sort of the focal point, And they leave Silas and Timothy there in Berea to help strengthen the believers and to help build the church. You guys, I want you to see this in context. 
Because if we could interview Paul right now and, and kind of ask him, hey, are you excited about being used by the Lord? I think he might go, yeah, I guess so. Now let's walk through this whole second missionary journey. Started in Acts 15 when Paul and Barnabas split. Remember that? You guys, Barnabas was Paul's closest friend. And they had this terrible division. And I mean, if we had heard he and Barnabas arguing about John Mark, I think we would have heard it two or three houses down. I have a hunch this was a barn burner of an argument. So they split up. Paul takes Silas. Barnabas goes, who did, he takes John Mark, right? And he goes off in the other direction. Have you ever had a split in a relationship? Anybody ever had a split in a relationship? I have. I'll be willing to admit that. You know, you kind of go on with your life, but do you know how there's a hole there? Does that resonate with you guys? I mean, it's, 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 Paul was going out and he was doing what God commanded and he was being obedient. But I honestly believe there was a deep sadness in Paul. I actually think Paul knew it was his fault. Paul, at that time in his life, was kind of a one-and-done guy. You know, you, you let me down one, you're over, baby. You know, give you one strike and you're out. And I know Barnabas and John Mark were related. But I have a hunch Barnabas would have been that way with any of the guys. Because Barnabas had seen Paul when he was a little raw and a little untested and a little unrefined. And Barnabas had been patient with with Paul as he grew up in Christ. So Barnabas is going through life and there, there's a sad, or excuse me, Paul is going through this trip and there's a sadness there. Then immediately in 16 verses 1 through 10, Paul wants to preach in different places. You remember that? And God through the Holy Spirit keeps saying, nope, not here. No, not here. No, not here. You know what I would thought would have thought if I were Paul? I would have thought, oh my gosh. Is this punishment for my sin? Is this punishment for the fight that I had with Barnabas? Is God, is God angry at me? And the Holy Spirit doesn't really explain to Paul. Hey, Paul, let me tell you why I'm saying no to you. In a few days, I'm going to give you this awesome vision to go to Macedonia, and everything's going to be fine. No, Paul is in this dark period right now. Then he goes to Philippi, and, and Fine, this is awesome. We're having a great ministry. People are getting saved. And what happens? He gets beaten up and thrown in jail. Then the earthquake comes. Great things happen. This Philippian jailer gets saved. His family gets saved. And Paul ultimately leaves Philippi. Now he comes to Thessalonica. Ministers, he gets uh, a lot of opposition, gets thrown out of town. Berea comes, and uh, again, Paul basically faces so much pressure, he has to leave. Now, guys, I want you to see something, because next chapter, I kind of wish I had time to do 18 too, but next chapter, we're going to see Paul at the very low point of his life, where he's ready to quit. I don't know if you ever knew that Paul reached a point in his life where he was ready to call it in. And in 18.9, God comes to Paul in a vision and he says, Paul, don't stop. Because I have many people in this city that I'm going to reach through you. And I think what was happening is this missionary journey started on a bad note and it just kept going worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So God was using Paul. 
But Paul was paying a price. And quite frankly, I see Paul running out of gas slowly but surely through this whole journey. You guys, what I want for you is to be on the front lines of the work of God. But what I also want for you is to go to the front lines realizing that you're going to get shot at. That there's an opponent out there who wants to do anything he can to shut you up. Now, with all of this, Paul comes to Athens. So now we're in uh, verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Athens was kind of an amazing city. In fact, it once had been amazing, an amazing city. But now, um, Athens was kind of past its heyday. In the time of Paul, this was the Acropolis up on the hill. And the uh, Areopagus, where Paul actually does the sermon, is that kind of lower high point where they used to sit around and have conversations. Paul comes, well, let's, let's read first and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Let's look at verse 16. By the way, Paul's in Athens alone. Very important to see that. And he actually wasn't planning to do anything in Athens. My guess is he was just there on a little kind of mini break, you know, kind of a pastor's retreat. And he was just going to kick back there, but it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within them, within him, as he was observing the city full of idols. By the way, I would love to see our spirits provoked by sin but not provoked in such a way that we curse the sinners. Provoked in such a way that we share the truth of the gospel. See, Paul was looking at idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. This is awful. And he was getting all angry about that. How does he expend his anger? He starts sharing the gospel again. So let's go on. Verse 18, or excuse me, verse uh, 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So Paul goes to the synagogue in the morning. He shares with the Jews what's going on. And then in the afternoon, he goes to the marketplace, kind of the gathering place where everybody just hung around and talked. And the people of Athens loved philosophy and they just loved to chew the fat with each other and just talk over things. And so Paul would take advantage of that. It was like Paul would go to Starbucks every afternoon and just sit down and start talking with people. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with them. By the way, a Stoic philosopher, uh, it was a philosophy that was about 300, actually six, oh, 400 years old by this time. The Stoics believed that everything was foreordained and you couldn't really change your fate. We see that a lot in movies where people kind of, oh, it's fate. Well, that's the Stoic philosophy, that there's nothing you can do because everything has been set in stone by this impersonal fate. They were actually pantheists, which believed that everything was God and God was everything. Then the Epicureans, and maybe you've heard about the Epicureans, you know, being the Budweiser philosophy, you only go around in life once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Uh, They actually did believe that happiness was the greatest good. But their definition of happiness was a virtuous happiness. In other words, they believed that the way you were happy was by loving and serving other people. So it was actually a very interesting philosophy. But they were the people who loved happiness, and then the Stoics were the people who hated happiness. You know, the, the Stoics believed everything was foreordained, so when they'd fall down the stairs, they'd say, Boy, I'm glad that's over. You know, so they just really believed that they didn't have any choice in what was going to be happening in their lives. So, some were saying, What does this idle babbler wish to say? They're kind of making fun of Paul. 
What's he talking about? Others, he seemed to be a proclaimer of strange deity because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. You guys, just so you begin to know what Paul's feeling inside. This is like people from Harvard inviting me to come speak to them. Or people from Oxford or people from Cambridge. And they're saying, Steve, would you do a lectureship for us and and tell us your beliefs and your views and your philosophy? I mean, this is the big time. And I'm actually wondering if for the first time in his life, Paul was intimidated. I'm wondering for the first time if Paul's looking at this simple story of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, so no matter what I've done, you're saying all I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and I will be saved. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And now as he's in Athens and the Stoics are over here and the Epicureans are over here and, and, and Paul is going, wow, I'm in the big leagues now. But he preaches. And there are two views you can take on this sermon. There are some people who believe it is the greatest sermon Paul ever preached. And we'll explain why. I am not in that camp. I believe that Paul came to view that sermon as a mistake. And I'll show you why I believe that in just a minute. Let's go on and read in verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. In other words, they loved, oh, this guy, he's got something different, something strange. Hey, let's bring him up and listen to him. So Paul goes and he begins to preach to them. Let's look at verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I view that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. You guys, I hate to say it, but this is flattery. Paul is trying to find common ground with them. And you might think, well, shouldn't we find common ground? I mean, if, 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 if I'm talking to a Buddhist, shouldn't I try to find where we agree? And then we can work from that a point of agreement and, and maybe we can kind of touch on some of the areas where we disagree. The sharing of the gospel... is kind of a radical message that most people in this world are going to hate. Most people in this world are going to view as foolishness. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And I think it is very helpful for you to realize right up front that most people that you share the gospel with are going to reject it. There are churches all over this nation that have decided to ease up on the gospel. I visited one church in uh, Illinois, um, and they actually called the gospel Gospel Light, L-I-T-E. And what they meant by that was if you went to teach there, you were instructed never to talk about sin. 
You're instructed not even to use the word sin because that brings people down. We want to lift people up. And this was a huge church. It was incredibly popular. I actually visited that church and the pastor came out on stage and he was holding his Bible. I thought, oh, this is good. I didn't expect that. And he apologized. He said, I'm sorry, but I have to read from the Bible today. Because it's the only way that I can get my point across. And he read a story from the Bible. And then as quick as you will, a stagehand came off from off stage, picked up the Bible and took it off stage. And that was the last we heard of the Bible. You guys, there is a great temptation to try to make the gospel palatable to the world. And when you do that, you suck the power right out of the gospel. I need the gospel because I am a sinner. Now, from the starting point, that's going to offend me. You mean, you mean I can't be good enough to get to God on my own? That's right. You mean God is going to condemn me to eternal hell for my sin? That's right. How dare he? Well, the fact is he's God, you're not. So that it, it kind of sets the stage of things. So, so Paul comes in and he's looking at their idols and he's saying, hey guys, we have something in common. I know you're sincerely worshiping God. You just don't know his name. So I'm going to tell you his name. Well, that's not the truth. They're not worshiping God in ignorance. They're worshiping an idol that is filled with the power of Satan. They're not five degrees on the wrong path. They're 180 degrees on the wrong path. Paul goes on in verse uh, four, uh, verse 16. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with fruit and gladness, even saying these things with difficulty. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm reading from Acts 14. Let me, verse 24. That didn't sound right to me. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, life, gives, life, gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children." Now, that actually sounds right, most of it, doesn't it? Did God create everything? Yep. Um, is it true that if we grope for God, we'll find him? I'm not sure about that one. See, God actually finds us. That's the whole story of the gospel. All through the Old Testament, people weren't seeking God. God was seeking people. All through the Old Testament, he was sending his prophets to share with people the word of God, and the people were rejecting the prophets. Then he sends his own son, and they reject his son. Paul says there is none who seeks for God. There is none righteous. Not even one. So the gospel isn't, you know what, I know you're doing the best you can. 
And, and God wants to give you some help. Now, the gospel is we have been sinners from day one. And every breath we take is an affront to the living God because we are taking it independently from him. Paul goes on. And it's, it's so interesting. Paul doesn't quote scripture here. He quotes one of their godless poets to give weight to what he's saying. Now let's go on. Verse 30. This act, or verse 29. Being that then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. Okay, that's good. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that people everywhere should repent. It's good. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Wow, very powerful. What's missing? What? And the death of Christ. There's no mention of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in this entire sermon. If I'm supposed to repent, how can I repent and come back to God? My sins have separated me, and there's nothing I can do to come back to God. The gospel is that God came to man. And in his death... He covered our sins and made it possible for us to come back to God. Their response was interesting. Now, when they heard of the resurrection, now he did cover the resurrection and he covered the judgment. He just forgot about the crucifixion. Because, interestingly enough, one of the things he says in 1 Corinthians, and by the way, Corinth was the very next city he went to after Athens. He says, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And I honestly think that's why Paul left it out. He was with the elite of the world, the wisdom of the world. He was, in a way, I think, and he was all alone. In a way, I think he was overwhelmed. Some of you may not like this, thinking, what? No, Paul, he's, he's an apostle. He can't make a mistake. He's human. And I got to give Paul credit. Paul had more courage than I will ever have if I devote every moment of my life to Christ from here on out. I, Paul is an amazing man. And I don't want you to think I'm being critical of Paul. All I'm trying to help you see, he's human, I think. The response was pretty tepid. That Some began to sneer. Others said, we shall hear you more concerning this. And some men joined him and believed. And so there, there were people who actually got saved with this. So why do I believe this was a mistake? And more importantly, why do I believe that Paul thought it was a mistake? I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because as you read next week, you're going to find that Paul left here and he went to Corinth. And Corinth was a very difficult city for Paul. Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. You know what I think is not being said? Been there, done that. I tried wisdom. I tried superiority of speech in Athens, and I think it was a bust. Verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that interesting coming right out of Athens where he didn't mention the crucifixion at all? So something huge transpired in Paul's mind for him to make the statement of verse 2. 
He said, you guys, I decided that my message was going to be about this thick. It's going to be about Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul is not committing hyperbole. He is actually stating how he was feeling at this point in his life. You guys, I, I came into to Corinth, and I think, quite frankly, Paul's confidence was shot at this point. He was at the low point of his life. He says, you guys, when I was with you, you did not see the strongest Paul. You certainly didn't see a self-confident Paul. You saw a guy who was trembling. Verse 4. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And now we see the intentionality of Paul so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of God. You guys, the thing I love about the Bible is it is so out there. I don't think the Bible tries to create heroes. The Bible presents people with all, David, Abraham, all of these guys. They present them with all of their frailties, all of their weaknesses, all of their sins. And the great thing about Paul is in his utter point of weakness. Where did he turn? He went back to the gospel. Back to the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that, he was able to plant a church in his weakness. That was a difficult church, but it, it endured. So, what do we get from this? I don't know about you, but, but there are times when I look at the gospel and I go, Really? Only one way to God? Seven pe- billion people on this earth. And it seems like the majority of them have never even heard the gospel. Hindus are out there living their lives on nails trying to get to God. Buddhists are trying to get to God. Uh, people of Islam are trying to get to Everybody's trying to get to God. And we're saying, no, there's only one way. And there's this rationalistic, cynical part of me that goes, really? I, that may sound like a terrible thing for a pastor to admit, but I, there are times when I have doubts. There are times when I feel like I'm just praying against the ceiling. But what I know, if this is gospel is true, And what I would love for you to walk out of her realizing that, that you don't have to be a superstar to make an impact in the lives of people around you. You can be who you are. You can wrestle with all of your doubts. I, I think if we pull back the covers a little bit, we'd discover we all have some doubts just sitting back in the back of our minds. And we're like the guy that Jesus was talking to. Hey, all things are possible if you believe. And he says, yeah, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. I can't tell you how many times I pray that prayer to God. And that's after over 40 years of walking with him. I love him and I am convinced that he is the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. But that doesn't mean I don't struggle with that from time to time. 
And there are times I look at the gospel and I go, it can't be that simple. But you guys, it is. And if you try to take the simple gospel and make it complicated, you'll pull the power right out of it. A couple of things I walk away with today. Number one, it is difficult being a child of God in today's world. Would you agree with that? And so my message to you is very simple. Get used to it. Because it's not like you're in life climbing this hill and you're finally going to hit the peak and then it's all downhill from the, well, it is downhill in one way, but, but not in the way we want it to be downhill. Okay, it's not like you're going to be skiing downhill for the rest of your life and all you got to do is let gravity do its thing. No, it is going to be a struggle until the day you die. So don't look for that expectation of you have the breakthrough in life where life gets easy. And you know, the neat thing is, is since I realized this, I've gotten a lot happier with life. When I stop expecting it to be easy and good, and I expect it, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge. Satan is going to oppose me. He's going to let things get comfortable for a while, and then he's going to whack me. And when we get used to that, and we put on the armor of God, and we realize I am not a Christian at peace. I am a Christian at war, and I will be till the day I die or the day Jesus comes again. And honestly, I don't care which it is, just so long as it comes fairly soon. Because I'm ready to see Jesus face to face. I'm ready in some ways for the battles to be over. But tomorrow morning, if I wake up with breath, my assumption is you've got more for me to do. And that's how we live, you guys. Paul said in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I think that was reaffirmed for Paul after his little time in Athens. Paul's message to self Forget wisdom, preach Jesus. So, Father, I just pray that you'd get us excited about being um, messengers of your kingdom and of your gospel. And, Lord, help us to realize that having doubts doesn't mean we don't believe. It just means we're human. And so help us to overcome those doubts and, and be willing to put our lives on the line so that you can use us. In Jesus' name, amen.